please turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 and going to the end of the chapter, starting in verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will, be, will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. If you have your Trinity hymnal, please turn with me to the very back. We've been going through select portions of the Westminster Larger Catechism. There's really not a whole lot of rhyme and reason to it other than uh, this is just select portions that I've chosen. But please turn with me to page 942. And we will read question 23, 24, and 25, the question and the answer. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 23 on page 942. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature, wherein consisteth the sinfulness of that estate wherein man fell. The sinfulness of that estate wherein man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteous, or the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature whereby. He is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin. 
and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. The Bible's teaching is that what has gone wrong with mankind is sin. Not only is that the Bible's teaching, that is what Christians have always confessed, that what is really wrong with the world, what is really wrong with us, is that we have fallen into a state of sin. Now, I know that many people today believe that there are other things that are really wrong with society and that they, they offer other solutions. People think there's a lack of education or a lack of economic opportunity or a, a lack of self-esteem or personal empowerment or material possessions and comfort. Some people think that if we just give the government more control, things will be better, and, or that what's really wrong with us is that there are stratifications, class stratifications in society, and that's what's really wrong. But Christians have always believed that what is really wrong with society and what can really put things right is that we are sinful and need to be forgiven. It is not always that people were so offended by the doctrine of sin. In fact, in the late 1700s, the father of the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, James Madison, he was responsible. He had been trained at Princeton by by, uh, ministers at that time. And he put in place in in our Constitution a system of checks and balances. And part of the reason of that was because they believed that no man could have absolute control or power because man was basically evil and sinful. And therefore, if too much power was in the hands of too few people, then it would lead to destruction, it would lead to chaos, and it would lead to less freedom. Tonight, on the basis of Romans 5, I would, verses 12 through 21... I want us to consider three things about sin. Why it's so serious. It is very serious. Why is it so serious? That's the first thing. Why is it so offensive to people? Why is it so offensive to people? That's the second thing. And then thirdly, why you should treat sin as a very serious thing. Why sin is serious. Why people are offended by it. And why you should treat it as serious. And the whole point of this is that you would have the kind of comfort and assurance that comes with knowing the Lord. That's the whole point of the sermon, that you would have comfort and assurance, but the degree to which you have comfort and assurance in your, in your faith will be the degree to which you think you've been rescued from sin. So first, why is sin so serious? Here in our passage... In verse 12, it says that sin came into the world through one man. The story of creation is that God created the world good, say, benevolent God, for his own glory, for his own honor, created the world, not because he needed to or had to, but out of his sheer love for his own glory, he created man in his own image. That was the crowning act of his creation. In his own image, he bestowed upon man honor and glory. No other creature was made in his image, but man was. He united man in marriage with a woman that he created. 
He gave them the task of having dominion and naming the animals and being fruitful and multiplying. And he gave them one requirement, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, as you know, man fell into sin. And when Adam fell into sin, as it says, not only in verse 12, sin came into the world through one man. It also says in verse 18, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. What does that mean? It means that Adam was a representative. Adam was not just a solitary figure living in the Garden of Eden, but rather he was a head. He was a representative, much like, although a little little bit different, but if you have a representative for the government, the United States government, you may have not voted for that person, but nonetheless, they represent you, even if you didn't vote for them state government or the federal government. But Adam was a representative, and when he sinned, the scriptural teaching is that his sin spread to everyone. It was a guilt that was credited to us. It was a guilt that was passed on, and a corruption that was passed on. It's taught elsewhere in scripture, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, says that by a man came death. Verse 22 says that in Adam all die. Sin is essentially lawlessness or disobedience. That's why in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is, first of all, an offense against a holy God. If other people think sin is offensive, how much greater should God think that sin is offensive? It is an act of rebellion against God, a holy God. The passage that we read this evening from the Westminster Larger Catechism tells us, as Scripture tells us, here in this this very passage, that sin is not just a single act, but rather when Adam fell into sin we were brought into a state of sin. It doesn't doesn't mean that we actually sin. We do actually sin. But when we are born, we are born into a state of guilt. Psalm 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ephesians 2 says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. We've been brought into a state of sin. That's why I wanted us to read the Westminster Larger Catechism, because it's more than just we have a bad example in in Adam. It's that he was our representative and his, his sin was imputed to us. Now, the Reformed tradition has always believed, following Calvin and perhaps even back to Augustine, that we are unable to keep God's commands in a state of sin. That's part of what is so offensive to people is that in our state of sin, we're unable to please God. We might have the the, um, we might think that we are able to, to please God, but Scripture's teaching is that in a state of sin, we're not. 
That's depravity. It's total depravity. Now, that, that term doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. It doesn't mean that, that you're as absolutely evil as you could be. What it means is that sin has infected every part of your life if you are a part of, apart from Christ. So your, your thoughts, your affections, your emotions, all of these things have been tainted and corrupted by sin. One of the things I love about Lord of the Rings is that the ring doesn't change people. The ring only magnifies what's already at work in their own heart in life. And part of the story is that if someone has a ring like Boromir or Frodo, they don't become someone different. But what happens is that what is in their heart is magnified in such a way that it could have devastating consequences for all of those who are in their sphere of influence. I don't think that that's too far afield from what depravity is. It's not that you are as bad as you could be, but that the seeds of death, the seeds of a lust for power, the seeds of every evil inclination are there. And if, if you let it, if you let sin reign in the body, then it will have devastating consequences, not only for you, but for everyone in your life. It doesn't lead anywhere good. It's like a seed that, if full-born, gives birth to death. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, said that sin was like a grave that was never satisfied. He said that you, you must be killing sin or else it's going to be killing you. John Owen knew that sin was an enslaving power that had to be put to death. That if, it doesn't, if it's not put to death in you, it, then it can wreak havoc in your life and in everyone else's life. Now, if that's the Scripture's teaching, and if that's the teaching of Romans chapter 5, that Adam is a representative, then why is this so offensive to people? What is it about this teaching of Scripture that people just find repugnant? Perhaps there's a lot of reasons, but perhaps it's because we like to think that we're pretty good people, <laughs> that God was pretty, pretty fortunate to have us on his team, that if, you know, if, if, if the cards were all on the table, then people would know really how great we are. We like to think that if we need salvation, then we're certainly saved by something that we can do, our own strength. But that is contrary to Scripture's teaching. And I would go back to what I started with to say that the degree to which you think you've been saved and rescued, to that degree, you will find comfort and hope in your life. It is my desire that you that righteousness would reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ in your life as it says in verse 17 the gift of righteousness may reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ i want to give you a little bit of a history lesson hope you'll permit me this about some of the people who found great comfort who held to this doctrine of depravity, but still found great comfort in their life from 
the grace that was offered in Christ. One of these people was Augustine. One of the church, early church leaders lived uh, in the late 300s, early 400s AD. He wandered away from God in his youth, and he had a deep conviction of sin, a stirring in his soul, where he was converted through, I believe, through the help of Ambrose and some others. But he wrote the confessions, and he would pray. He would pray a prayer. One of the prayers he prayed was, Lord, give me grace to do what you command. Command me to do what you will, and give me grace to do what you command. There's a a universe of rich theology in that prayer, because he's saying that in his his own flesh and, and blood, he cannot keep the commands of God. Another person who lived around that same time was a British monk named Pelagius, who had lived a quiet life, an austere life. He believed that that prayer that Augustine prayed was wrong, because why would God give us a command that we could not keep? Wouldn't it be unloving and unjust for God to give us a command that we can't obey? He believed that we had the power within ourselves to reach out and lay hold of Christ by faith in our own strength, because we would have free will, and we believe that, he would say, we would believe that you can do right, you just need to try. I'm, I'm putting, I'm watering it down, but he believed that what Augustine was praying was wrong. Sadly, I I don't think that he had the kind of comfort and assurance that Augustine had, because Augustine knew that without the the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was lost. Another, Another lesson would have been Luther, Martin Luther. Luther was a a monk, and he was plagued by guilt. He had a troubled conscience. He had a, a terrible, terrible thought that he could never, he was never really in God's grace. He would go to the confessional and spend four or five hours, I forget how many hours in the confessional, and he questioned whether his heart was truly sincere. He had I won't say he was a friend, but there was someone else in his same day and age who was not plagued by the same conscience, and his name was Erasmus. Erasmus was a Dutch philosopher, a humanist scholar. He knew many languages. He had translated the New Testament uh, from the original Greek. Erasmus did not, he wanted to reform the church in the 1500s. He wanted to reform the church, but Erasmus thought it could be reformed from within. When Luther started attacking the church and attacking the indulgences of the church, Erasmus was drawn into the conflict, and in 1524, he wrote a book called On Free Will, where he essentially said a very similar thing to Pelagius, that we were able to keep God's commands because we had free will. We had it within the power of our own will to please God. Luther would reply on the bondage of the will in the next year, which is a wonderful book. Here's one of the things that Luther wrote, which I hope you find comfort in. God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of his and promised to save me, 
Not according to my working or running, but according to his own grace and mercy, I have the comfortable certainty that he's faithful and will not lie to me. And that he is also great and powerful, so that no devils or opposition can break him or pluck me from him. Furthermore, I have the comfortable certainty that I please God not by reason of the merit of my works, but by the reason of his merciful favor promised to me. So that if I work too little or badly, he does not impute it to me, but with fatherly compassion pardons me and makes me better. This is the glory of all the saints in their God. Do you hear the comfortable certainty with which Luther knew that he belonged to the Lord? Here was a man who, who wrote on the bondage of the will, and yet at the same time he knew because of the depths of his own sin and because of Scripture's teaching and because of Romans, as Augustine had studied Romans, so Luther had studied Romans as well. He knew on the basis of those of that book, that it was only for the grace of God that his salvation could ever come about. And because of that, he had the kind of comfort that goes along with knowing, standing on the word of God, not standing on one's feelings about oneself, not standing about on one's works, on the merits of, hey, I, I, I spent this many hours of confessional, I brought this many indulgences, I did this many things, none of that had any merit before the Lord. It was all God's grace because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and apart from that, we are lost. One other quick history lesson, and the reason I'm giving you this is because I've heard, I've heard it taught even in this area before. Not at this church, but I have heard it taught that God chooses people on the basis of their faith, that he foresees faith. He looks down the corridors of time. He sees who who will have faith, and he chooses people because they've had faith. That may not sound like a very big deal, but that was taught by a man named Arminius, Arminius, excuse me, back in the late 1500s, early 1600s, and it was rejected by the church. Because if God chooses you on the basis of you choosing him, he's not really sovereign. You're not really dead. You don't really need the grace of God. God really isn't God. It was rejected by the Synod of Dort in 1618, where an assembly made up of 84 members, people had traveled from all over the West to be at this assembly. It was a very... August Assembly, 154 sessions, where they came up with what now is called the five points of Calvinism. I won't go through them, but just know that the church has taken sin seriously from the very beginning. These are not light matters, and you should take it seriously as well. Why should you take it seriously? By the way, that synod, the Synod of Dort and the Canons of Dort, would become the basis of the confession of faith in the Westminster Larger Catechism and Shorter Catechism. But why should you take it seriously? I've given you this history lesson. I've I've outlined Scripture's teaching about the state of sin that we're in. Why should you take it seriously? Here are a few reasons why. 
First, if you view your sin as small, then you will believe that God is pretty small too. That may not sound like a big deal, but that will mean that you'll probably read your Bible less, you'll probably pray less, you'll probably come to church less. As a result of those things, it will mean that you will be a joyless, thankless, hopeless kind of person. Your character will be small. That's that's the problem. If your view of your sin is pretty small, then your view of yourself will be really large. No matter if you're seven feet tall, what will happen is that your character will be pretty small. You'll be filled with perhaps arrogance. You'll be overconfident about what you've accomplished in life. You will be proud of what you believe you have merited. If it is led to its logical conclusion, there will be less humility in your life. There will be less gratitude for what Christ has done. There will be less grace in your life. I don't want that for you. Here's another implication. Your relationships. If you see your sin as pretty small, then most likely when you are around other people, you may be prone to think that their flaws are pretty big in comparison to your own. You may believe that, yes, there's sin in your life, but can you believe the sin that's out there? It might lead to broken relationships in your life. It might lead you not to be able to commit yourself fully to other people because how could you commit to someone who's a sinner? And you might think that their, their sin is really large. You most likely will not be the chief repenter of any relationship. If you think your sin is pretty small, then here's another thing. Logically speaking, your courage in the face of life's challenges will be pretty small too. Logically speaking, here's why. Because you'll be less likely to sacrifice your own needs and your own wants for other people. People who think of themselves as very large and their sin is very small, they're the people who are not willing to charge into battle. Because after all, why doesn't someone else do that? Why doesn't someone else sacrifice? But rather, the people who have courage in life, they're the ones who count their lives as pretty small. They're the ones who think that their life really, in the end, Life will go on, that God doesn't absolutely need them. That leads them to be able to give up their own needs and their own concerns for the needs of other people. And here is the heart of this doctrine. It is found in Christ, because in Christ we have the Son of God, though he did not need to, But out of his own voluntary love and for his own glory, took on flesh, dwelled among us, lived a perfect life, and died in Jesus Christ, a substitutionary death upon the cross for you and I. That's courage. It was necessary. That self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ was necessary for you and I to be forgiven. He is the second Adam He is the last Adam. 
He came to undo everything that was lost in the first Adam. He came to restore and advance our estate, bring us out of the state of sin and misery, and bring us into a state of salvation, and one day bring us into a state of glorification where there will be no sin, where every tear will be wiped away, and every sorrow be gone. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ could not have been born in the usual way, because he could not be tainted with the guilt of Adam. That's why he was born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Spirit, in order that he might help us in our estate of sin and misery and bring us out. In Christ Jesus, we have the definition of self-sacrifice and love. If you want to have the comfort and the hope that is offered to you in the gospel, then you have to know the depth to which Jesus Christ went to save you from your sin. If your sin is small, the cross is small. And if the cross is small, then the comfort you get from it is small. But I want you to be filled with gratitude and love for God and other people on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you. I want that for you and for me and for my family. So brothers and sisters, I hope that you are comforted by the cross. I hope you are comforted by knowing that it is not that your strength that saves you. When you go through doubts and trials in your life, we are all tempted to think, my strength of my faith is weak. You might be tempted to doubt, but you're not saved by your strength. You're saved by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved by the object of your faith, the strength of Christ. That's why and how you're saved. For every look that you take at your own sin, take Ten looks at the Lord Jesus Christ because it is he and he alone that will bring you into true comfort and eternal rest and eternal assurance, assurance in this life for the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us as the second Adam. We acknowledge that death reigned through Adam, that we've been brought into a state of sin apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. I pray that the doctrine of sin and depravity, that as heavy as those doctrines are, it would lead us to the cross, that we wouldn't abstract that from the cross, but it would lead us to the cross and through the cross that we would have hope and comfort and assurance knowing that it is not our strength that saves us but it is the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ the God who took on flesh to dwell among us and die a substitutionary death in our place I pray that that self-sacrificing act of atonement that that would change us in the present that would change us. I would change our hearts. It would change our lives. That we would look more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. We know that many people are offended by this, and rightly so. 
it is offensive to our natural way of thinking that we cannot please you in ourselves. But we know that you are a holy God. We know that none of our acts of good works could ever merit anything before you. That is why we need the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that the power that raised him from the dead is the same power that indwells us by the Holy Spirit. We pray that that power would be at work within us, that it would mortify the sin within. And then rather than a plant giving birth, Lord, to death, it would be like a plant that's blossoming in our life so that people would see how different we are and how changed we've become from who we used to be. We pray this all for the glory of Jesus Christ and in his name, amen.